Well, now, there were a group of new army recruits, and they were involved in some army training, and they were out on the hills and the mountains of Wales, and they got hopelessly lost. And then they saw an adjudicating officer, and in their panic, they didn't show him the respect due to his office, and they rushed up to him, and they said, do you know where we are? And he raised himself up to the heights of his rank. And he said, do you know who I am? And they said, now we've got a real problem. We don't know where we are. And he doesn't know who he is. (laughs) It's always been the case, if you check back on humanity in any age, there's been this kind of uncertainty about Who are we? Where are we from? What are we about? And how are we meant to live? In a lesser-known Beatles song, it summed it all up. He's a real nowhere man, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Hasn't got a point of view. Knows not where he's going to. Isn't he a bit like me and you? However, as you will be aware, in recent years, the issue has heated up somewhat in a particular direction. And therefore, there is talk these days about gender dysphoria. Now, my subject is not gender dysphoria, although, of course, we need to look at that and consider that, but I'm not a physician and I'm not a psychiatrist, so I could speak with great authority based upon total ignorance when it comes to subjects like that. I certainly have in my research recently and been helped by a retired surgeon who has over the last couple of months been channeling so much information my way from all sorts of sources. I now know a whole lot more about this than I really care to know. But it's been helpful to be able to explore such things. The closest I have got to this whole area was on one occasion I was a theological advisor to the Christian Medical Fellowship. But that really amounts to nothing when it comes to exploring this from the physical or the psychological aspects. But I do know through the years a lot about the Bible. And we're going to be focusing upon what the Bible has to say, not just about this subject, but wider than this subject. And we'll be talking about gender identity. And you will know that there has been a cultural shift in recent decades when somebody as a girl was more interested in playing soccer than playing netball, we would say that was a tomboy. Now, the direction moves us to say, well, maybe they're in the wrong body, and that really they are male rather than female, and you can reverse that in other situations too. And this has been particularly because of an organization, and undoubtedly many people in this organization are very sincere because they have people within their own family, children, who are wrestling with issues like this for one reason or another. And this is impinging greatly upon schools around our country, and undoubtedly it is going to become bigger. You will have heard, some of you, if not all of you, of the mermaid gender spectrum. So they would say there are 12 genders And in schools, that now needs to be taught. 
There is the Barbie doll right through to the G.I. Joe and people in between. And you have to decide what you are. And you might be one thing one day and yet something else on another day. That is the direction you know that we have moved. In recent teaching videos that have come from the BBC and are out there for schools and for others, they are talking now in terms of a hundred genders and that you must decide which is your gender. Well, we need to talk about this issue, but we need to talk about it biblically. And that's what I intend to do to the best of any God-given ability that I have at this point in time. And if we're going to direct ourselves to this subject biblically, then there are three ways in which we need to be approaching this. And those of you who by email have had the notes of this, or those of you who have picked up a paper copy, will see what that outline actually is. And then beneath that, I've supplemented it with all sorts of material and stuff that you can take a further look at this if you choose to do so. But we do need to look at first our identity in gender as men and women. And to do that, we will go back to the origins where Jesus went to when he spoke about gender, about men and women, and what does it mean to be a man, and what does it mean to be a woman as we have it from origins. And then secondly, a husband and wife gender and identity. And for that, we could go to many places, but we will go just to Colossians 3, and we will see what the New Testament says about being a husband or being a wife. And are there differences? And can they change within a marriage? We'll look at that in terms of gender. The third area that we should cover if we were to be completely biblical over this would be gender among church members. Because we all recognize that we're all one in Christ Jesus. But is that just to do with our status but not to do with our function? And therefore within the church there are different functions between men and women. Different roles that they will or cannot take up. Now that's a subject I have no time to deal with at all. Many of you might be pleased about that because we would be here for a lot longer than otherwise. That's a subject perhaps for you to take on another occasion. We'll just look at the first two parts of our gender identity from a biblical perspective. So we'll turn to Genesis 2, which will talk about our identity as men and women. And we start by looking at the making of man. Genesis 2 and verse 7. The Lord God formed men from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life And man became a living being. God created man with three divisions. The body was made first, but man is more than a body. Man has a soul as well as a body. And the soul, as dear Billy Graham would say, is the real you. In other words, it is our personality, it is our mind, it is our emotions. 
It is our will. Man had a soul as well as a body. Now, into this body with a soul, God breathed a living spirit. And the spirit makes us different to animals. An electric light bulb is wire and glass. But when electricity passes through it, it takes on a life, takes on something which is different. And that's what happens when God breathed his spirit into the body of man. When the spirit passes from the body, the body dies. James says the body apart from the spirit is dead. That's what scripture means when it says man is dead in sin. In other words, that sense of consciousness about God, that sense of awareness of God is not something that naturally man can experience and know. As Adam came perfect from God, he was alive beyond anything we currently can experience and can know about God and how we relate to God and how we walk to God. Adam's task was to learn how to turn the rest of the world into a paradise that he was enjoying. And because man failed in the garden, the rest of the world became a rubbish dump. Now, the trees in the garden were pleasing to the eye and good for food. God wanted a world with usefulness and beauty. Architects must remember that, and all who build. And a God-appointed tree gives the knowledge of good and evil. It was God-appointed because in the act of eating, certain things would happen to Adam and to Eve. Communion illustrates this for us. God has appointed bread and wine to do something in our communion with him. It's only, of course, bread and wine. I sometimes think of it like this. I carry about with me an object. It's made of plastic and metal. That's all. Nothing special about it, but it's called a phone. And depending upon whom I'm in touch with through that plastic and metal, I can be happy or I can be sad. But it's only plastic and metal and it's only bread and wine. Nothing happens to it other than being just that. But through it, in approaching God, we could end up, if we're not doing things rightly, being sick Or even dying. It's what the Apostle Paul said to the Corinthians. Because there is a special kind of communion. Which happens through that ordinary bread and wine. Now what is wrong with knowing good and evil? I mean isn't that a good thing? Genesis 3.5 is the answer in the serpent's words. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Not everything the devil says is a lie. But what he does with the truth is this, he will misuse that truth in order to inhibit our life and lifestyle. 
And only God can properly define good and evil. And we have been made to discover the difference by relating everything to him and to what he says is good or is evil. And when man ate from the tree, he began to do what God does. To relate everything to himself, becoming like God, deciding this is good and this is bad. This is right and this is wrong. And it's a lie. Man is not the center of the universe and he can't be. But Satan has whispered this lie into us. What you like is right. If you want to do something, nobody has got the right to tell you that you cannot do that. Watch television commercials. And they are full of this. Of course you can have this. You're worth it. Of course you should have this. Because it's right that you should have it. Now this is the curse that fell on Adam when he ate. His mind was twisted and he thought of himself as God. Now this thinking introduced an eccentric element into the world. Do you know the problem with planet Earth right through the centuries? It's this. We have a whole load of people who are eccentric. Christians who seek to put God at the center, we are not really the eccentric ones at all. Because that's how life was meant to be lived. Coming from God, living according to him, to meet him. And the world around about us has got off center. And this is why everything is always going wrong, no matter how hard we try to get things put right. So we invent cars and we get tanks and we invent planes and we get bombers and we split the world and make the atom bomb by all that we are doing, shattering everything. The great news of the gospel is this. We can resume a balanced life. We can get God once again through Christ right back into the center of our lives and begin to gear things up in a way that gives genuine purpose, authenticity, meaning and reason and joy and peace in our believing. So that's man and his origins and the making of man. But what about the making of woman? Now, I have a wife and two daughters, so I should be an expert in this area, but I know that I am not. But we're not going to go to our own ideas on this. What is God's original intention in making the female? And Genesis 2, 18 to 25, is about a woman's creation and role in marriage. Now, these days, of course... There is often talk about the marriage of homosexuals. Now, I will just say here in passing, biblically, that is a poor imitation of what God has always intended. I say pastorally that as well, because I don't want to come across in any intolerant way, which is sometimes how it will be projected. But it would only be by misrepresenting New Testament scriptures, let alone the Old Testament ones, to say anything to my mind other than that. Because marriage is a two-in-one-flesh communion of persons. It takes a man and woman 
to become one flesh. The response some people will make immediately is this. That's your definition of marriage. And you are trying to impose your definition of marriage upon us. No, I'm not. I am trying to look at what God's word says is a marriage and is the role of a woman and a man. We are not just defending the Christian view, by the way. We are defending recorded history. We have in recent years as a country entered uncharted waters because although there has always been homosexuality through the years, most of the Roman emperors were at least bisexual. It would seem that Alexander the Great, a great soldier that he was, was also bisexual. Of course you can go back and you can see that. But we have done as a society what no other society has done in introducing the concept of marriage to that whole social arrangement. So we are not trying to defend the Christian view. We are going back through recorded history and saying we have now moved into something as a world that is entirely new. Now, of course, and I guess you will have heard this as well, is there not a gay gene behind all of this? If you check back, you will discover that is bad science. I could give you the name, if we had the time and the details, of the person who, first of all, propagated that idea, and then others did research on his research and found how poorly that research had actually been. And by the way, what I'm saying about this now is agreed by the gay community itself. Again, I could give you names, and if you know anything about this in England, you will know those names from the gay community. And they are saying it would be very convenient if it was true that there is a gene that is gay within us. Why? Because then it would be acceptable. It would have to be acceptable. But that is just not something that has been proved from nature or nurture. The debate is still out there. But when we talk in terms of nature, well, we all have dispositions in different ways. And some of us might be more inclined in one direction, maybe to alcohol problems because of the situations that we have been or our background. So if we go down the road of drinking, we could end up into excessive drinking and ill health and even an early death because it's like a Russian roulette and we don't know within our own family whether it's nature or nurture within that situation. So what is God's purpose in making a woman? The Lord God said it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. The original intention was that man would have a companion. A shattering emotion is loneliness. Do you realize loneliness is not a sin? Loneliness was there before ever sin came into the world. Because without Eve, Adam was lonely. 
And he needed somebody as company coming in to that situation. But may I stress that marriage isn't the only way to be profitably related. Jesus was not married, but not incomplete. So verse 19 Now the Lord God formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. We name what we have authority over. So when our girls were young and we decided that we would get a cat, we found one and we thought that's just the one for us. The name that its breeder had given it was Starborn Silver Mandrath, which is a bit of a mouthful, is it not? So we called it Daniel. You see the connection, the cat family, you know, Daniel and the lion's den. That was our kind of twisted logic in calling it Daniel. But we had authority over that cat. So we, well, I think it had more authority over us, but you know what I mean. And we called it accordingly by the name that we chose for it. And Adam learned several things by God bringing animals to him, but taking a rib from him to form his companion. First, a woman is not a beast of burden. Perhaps the most frequent comment in counseling circles When it comes to marriage, is the wife saying of her husband, he just treats me as part of the furniture. And second, a woman is not just for having children. This is the difference between the Catholic and Protestant views of sex. The Catholic view is Genesis 1-2. God blesses them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Procreation is one purpose. Catholic thought sees birth control as a denial of God's purpose in sex. Genesis 2 reveals more, that it is different in man to the animal world. It is meant for pleasure, not just for procreation. So that speaks into an issue of whether you should or should not use contraception. It is meant for pleasure when you look back at the origins, not just to procreation. Now, what process did God follow in making woman? Verse 21. The Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Men have the same number of ribs as women. So I've had people say to me, how can that be true? Well, think about it. If you lose a finger, does it mean your offspring are going to be out without a finger as well? So it's a self-defeating argument there. God knew what he was doing in using a rib. Ribs are bones nearest to the heart. And tears, fears and cheers are more easily displayed in a woman than they are in a man. Matthew Henry, a great 
Bible commentary from another generation has put this so wonderfully. Let me quote him. When God made woman, he did not make her out of a man's head to lord it over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled on by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, from under his arm to be protected by him, and from near the heart to be loved by him. Isn't that lovely? Now, what properties make a marriage work well? Verses 23 to 25 is a remarkable condensing of all the essentials. Here is the first boy meets girl event in human history. And it contains five facts. Number one, marriage involves a complete identity. Adam's first reaction was, she is one with me. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Hurt your wife and you hurt yourself. Because in marriage, we have become one body united, a complete identity. Next, marriage involves leadership. She shall be called woman. For she was taken out of man. Paul enlarges on this when he writes to the church at Corinth. Man was not made for woman, but woman was made for man. And then next, marriage requires a breaking of old family ties. A man will leave his father and mother. In-laws can become outlaws and rob that new relationship of so much. There is a breaking of an old relationship, to form the new one. And more than that, marriage is permanent. There is a leaving to be united. The word there is glued together. You get two bits of paper and you glue them together and then you try to separate them. You can't do that without tears, without destruction coming in. And then next, an openness between a man and wife. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. This is not nudism, but two people with absolutely nothing to hide. In Eden, all these properties were present. United as one, leadership, good ties, permanent and openness. And the result, they felt no shame. They were relaxed, one with the other. Now, can you see the implications? Jesus endorsed Genesis. And that means humans are fundamentally two kinds. Modern science can deal with the biological intersex malfunction. But Jesus takes this up and says, really, there are only two genders, male and female. Much so-called transsexuals is about psychological problems. And today's educators may well be open to future legal challenges. I sat having lunch with a GP a little while ago and heard her saying to my wife and I, I think in the future this could be seen as child abuse. And every partner within her practice 
were of the same mind. So it raises a question that we have to ask here. What should Christian parents say in this situation? Because it does come up. Comes up not just at the school gates, but in the school playground. Because it's coming very much to the fore. It's not realistic to say nothing. Because they're going to find out one way or the other. Don't rattle our children with information overload. But we answer their questions, where do babies come from, don't we? And we try to, as carefully as possible, be accurate in the way in which we talk about that. I see no difference in talking about this kind of issue in our current culture. Tell children our disagreement, but don't ridicule or be hostile. Which brings us, therefore, to Colossians 3 and verse 18, and we explore now our identity as a husband and wife. An old Arabic proverb, it is typically Arabic, really down to earth. It says that marriage begins with a prince marrying a princess, and it ends up as a bald-headed man looking across the kitchen table at a fat lady. I'll tell you a miracle. When the bald-headed man and the fat lady are still in love after all of those years. Now, Paul's words are part of what God wants us to know about our identity in a marriage, as a husband and as a wife. And you will notice, if you refer to that passage, that there is a thorny word. It is the word submit. And I would just say here, I believe it is a libel on the Apostle Paul to think that he had a downer on women. You just look at the overview of the things that he says about women and the ways in which he would encourage them to be involved in ministry. Indeed, you can make an argument out of saying one whole book in the New Testament is taken up with a conflict between two women in the church. And Paul thought it so important to write about that situation to the church there in Philippi. And then you look at people that he commends, particularly you look at the end of Romans 16 and the greetings that he sends. The only people that he says in that list have worked hard for the Lord are the women. I'm sure that men have done the same thing, but he doesn't emphasize that. He emphasized what the women are doing and what they are about. Paul did not demean women. Everything that he said was a strategic step forward. But the essential quality singled out for a woman that she had to submit to her husband in marriage is actually for both. Not just for a woman, but also for a man. Paul does say, wives, submit to your husbands. But in Ephesians 5.21, he says, submit to one another. Before he then goes on and says the same thing as he said to the church of Colossae about submission within the marriage. And the word is just the same, hupotasso. And it actually means in the relationship as a husband to a wife, show respect. And as a wife to a husband, show respect. What's wrong with that? 
Surely everything is right about that. Paul is not delegating women to a lesser position by saying, introduce that virtue of submission. I think probably it's more likely by temperament and nature, a woman will introduce that into the marriage easier than a man will. But it's no less the responsibility of both. And I believe that God has given a special gift to women to actually start the ball rolling. To do that, which is no less the responsibility of us both. But any unit of society needs a leader. So in a game of football, there is a captain as a leader of that team. Or in a business, there is a chairman of the board. Or in our parliament, there is someone who is meant to act as an arbiter of situations. Is that not the case? And when Christ is the acknowledged leader with his lordship over that marriage, then the husband can say, I believe this is the direction we should be going and there'll be no issues. But there's a great difference between saying, do what I say because I'm the man around here. And I believe this is what God is saying is the direction that we should be going. Indeed, the kind of submission that we are to have within a marriage is exactly what you see in the Trinity. When Jesus came, the invisible God, making himself visible here on earth, he did nothing without submitting it to the Father that was above him, that didn't make him a lesser being within the Trinity. But it was a way of functioning within that trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Too many discussions about this issue end up as debating the issue of being a head over a wife, when actually it's a head of a wife. When I was about to go and study theology, I knew I needed to get a bit of money, and so I went on a building site. It was so boring what I had to do, but it made the money, you know, digging a hole for a plumber and then filling it up afterward, that kind of thing. But I quickly realized that I got paid for my shoulders down. I didn't get paid to use my head or to think about this at all because I had a head over me who gave me those directions. But the husband is a head over of his wife in order to do that which is good incidentally the bible does not say that a woman in a marriage cannot have a professional career many wives are quite capable of doing that kind of thing and still holding down a very key job you just read proverbs 31 And you will see somebody I describe as superwoman. I don't know how she does it. But she's got help in the home to look after domestic needs so that she can be out setting up businesses. She's chairman of the board. This is the Old Testament. And this is what she is about. Submission does not mean that a woman is inferior to men. 1 Peter 3, 7 says men are to honor women as the weaker partner and when it comes to physical strength is that not very often the case 
Women are equal to men and in some ways superior. We see that every day if we go to a walk where we live on the Dorset coast. And you see the day trippers coming. And the coach doors slide open. And the elderly people get out. And most of them are women. After the age of 65, they have very definitely become the stronger sex. And do you know a higher proportion of men will suffer from mental illness than women, as well as outlive men? To the men, Paul says, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. And I have never spoken to a woman unwilling to submit in this way to her husband when her husband loves her as Christ loves the church. Actually, I think the man has got the harder rap there, don't you? That we are to be like Jesus in that relationship. Summing up then what we are seeing as to our identity within marriage, wives are to respect their husband. And husbands are to show consideration. What can wives do to give him respect? Start by respecting his need to compete. Very often by identity, men are more goal-centered and women are more relationally focused. So, for example, I say to my wife, we've got an event coming up. Why don't we go out and buy you a new dress? You're always reminding me, you see, of Eve. I haven't got a thing to wear. That kind of approach. I wouldn't say that, of course. I value my life, but uh, there you go. But let's get you a dress. So we go out and we go to the department store and I am heading for where I know the dresses are and I look round and Pauline is missing. And then I kind of come back and say, what's happened? Oh, well, you see, it's coming up to our daughter's birthday, which is actually today. And I just thought we would get her something. Or we're visiting people. I thought we would get them something at this point. Now, I love my daughter. And I want to be as supportive in all ways that I can. But we are there to get a dress for my wife. And I am goal-focused. That is what we are about. But you see, she is relationally focused. And we need to understand that about one another. We are driven to be the best that we can be as men. We are conquerors. So our friend is a boy. He climbed the tree and he broke his leg. So we're going to climb the tree and prove that we can break both of our legs. Because we're goal-focused. That's why we as men, dare I say this, that's why we like the remote control for the television set. Because there's power there, you see. And we can surf the channels. We can be watching 30 channels all at the same time. Now, I'm not saying all this is right. I am only saying understand and respect his need for peace, as Peter put it, the married apostle, when he talks about the wife's beauty, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. We like you to look nice, 
but we also want peace. Now, some women will be listening to what I have just said, and I've tried to keep it brief, but you'll be thinking, talk about the men, Derek. Talk about them now. Let's get a balance in here, okay? We'll talk about the men for a moment who are to show consideration. You see, physically, we are different to one another. You have probably noticed that. 40% of a man's body weight is muscle. Only 20% of a woman's body is muscle, which means she can gain weight a whole lot easier by eating less than you. And you will lose weight. Not fair, is it? (laughs) But that is just part of how we are. Our brains are wired differently. So we think differently about things. When babies are inside a mother, this is a layman talking here, okay? Not a medic. But there is a kind of chemical reaction that takes place within the brain. It separates the connecting fibres between the two halves of the brain. Girls don't get a chemical overdose in the same way in which boys get it. So they can have a good right side to their brain as well as a good left side. And the left side deals in facts. So here's the guy... The male dealing in facts and you say to him when he gets home from work, did you think about me today? That's a killer. Of course he didn't think about you. Because when he's on the job, he is on the job. When he is at work, he is at work. When he's watching football on television, he is at the stadium. You ladies are different. You can think with both sides of your brain. You can drive along in the car and you could be thinking about that wedding anniversary card and that meeting that you're going to have and that telephone conversation that you need to have and we can say scatterbrain and it's not true. And the better we understand those differences, the more we're going to be able to live with one another's unique identities. Our problem is that you ladies can ask us a question and we as guys have to work out which half of your brain wants the answer. Is it the factual side or is it the feeling side that wants the answer? So you ask, is my hair okay? That's a killer. I mean, do you want the facts? Yes, it's wonderful. Just put a brown paper bag over your head and it's wonderful. You see, I learned a long time ago when my wife would say to me in a new dress, how do I look? And I would reply, wonderful. And she will say to me, you always say that. You bet I always say that. I'm a survivor. And I intend to keep on surviving. She goes through a monthly period. Shock horror. He's not going to talk about that, is he? Well, delicately, yes. But you see, there are chapters in the Bible that deal with this. So you can't be a Bible teacher without addressing this kind of subject, can you? It's a weird thing as far as the male is concerned. Between 40 to 60% of suicides among women happen during that monthly cycle. Crazy, isn't it? 
but that's how it is. 63% of women caught in crime happened during that time. It's an action time for all sorts of things that are actually happening. My things are going way ahead of me here, and I didn't intend them to go that far, so I'll try and let them go back, and you'll probably see them coming up again. Something's gone wrong with the timing on the computer there. But uh, let's just think about this. Remember, her sources of self-esteem are quite different. Major sources of a man's self-esteem comes from what he does, but hers will come from how she relates to other people that are around about her. Physically, emotionally, and romantically, there are different dates that she will put a special meaning to. Write them down, guys, so you know what they are. Agatha Christie was a great crime novelist, and she was married to an archaeologist. And she used to say, it's wonderful being married to an archaeologist because the older you get, the more interested he becomes in you. Now, we can't all be married to an archaeologist, but there should be no off-limit subjects within that relationship, just the right timing for them. Now, in the Bible, love is what you do, not a feeling. It's why the old song, you know it, you feel it, feel it in my fingers, feel it in my toes, the love that's all around me, and so the feeling grows. It's not like that at all. Sometimes people say, I've lost affection. Faithfully do that which is right, and the Holy Spirit can help you with that. So let's get positive about this. We all transition into a new body. In a twinkling of an eye, our identity will change. This body that we wear now is going to wear out. Some of us look in the mirror in the morning and we think, who is that old guy looking back at me? But it happens after time. And to know we're going to have a transition very quickly into a new body. We will evolve into that new body speedily. I smile when I hear self-affirmations. Waking up in the morning, every day in every way, I'm getting better and better. I want to make some Christ affirmations. Let's tell ourselves, I know who I am in Christ, in Christ in me. I'm a child of God. And if anybody asks the question, why was Jesus never married? The answer is because he intends to be. You cannot limit Jesus to the bachelor role. Speaks in the last picture of the New Testament of himself as a heavenly bridegroom and his church, people like us as the bride. I know it's just a picture, but you see the meaning is always greater than any picture that you have in the Bible. The reality is greater. We are the bride of Christ. That is our identity. So we don't need to be inhibited because we're inhabited by the spirit of Christ to evolve us and to transform us from the inside out, changing us and growing us spiritually as we set our mind upon him that we might have that joy and peace and life in our believing and one day 
to have a body. Still sexual. You notice that? Still men and women in a new earth and a new heaven and though relationships will have changed. All because of our new identity in Christ. We are yours and you are ours. And we are changed for the better. What a blessing. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we can finish on that note. Thank you for the transitioning that is happening and will happen in a twinkling of an eye. But Lord, as well, we think back over origins as Jesus outlined them, as the New Testament does, in terms of a man and a woman, and in terms of a husband and wife. And we pray that we will allow these truths to go round our minds. And as we address different issues with different people, we want to do so with compassion and with care and with wisdom, so that in all things we may live to your honor and to your glory until we meet you face to face through Jesus Christ. Amen.